like greeting you in the same way that James, at the beginning of his letter, greets those to whom he is speaking. He says, uh, greetings to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, and it is increasingly starting to feel that way for me. And uh, so I do greet you that way. Greetings to all of you scattered uh, among the various districts of this province. It sure would be good to see you again face to face. My great Advent longing is for a reunion and to see one another bodily. Tim said to me this morning, as I said, it's good to see you. He said, it's good to be seen and how incredibly true that is. So Lord willing, we will be able to gather together again soon. But this Advent is seriously a time of longing and of waiting for many things. And above all, the coming of Jesus into our lives today and the coming of Christ uh, once again in a consummating fashion. We're going to be looking this Advent, as you may have noticed if you read some of the notes in the bulletin uh, that came to you online, that we're going to be looking at Matthew's genealogy and with particular focus on the unexpected figures that we see here with four women leading into the fifth woman who is Mary. Um, We're going to be, of course, examining the stories also that stand behind these women. So today it's going to be Genesis 38, and next week it's going to be from the passages in Joshua that are relative to Rahab. So I invite you in preparation for this series to read those texts as well. For this morning, though, beloved, I invite you to listen to God's word as it's written here in Matthew 1 through 1 verse uh, through 17. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife namely Bathsheba. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, Abiad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is God's word. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would complete the circle of revelation. 
that you would give to our hearts and our minds divine illumination so that we would understand what the Spirit is saying to the church today, what the Spirit is saying to us as individuals today. Ignite, Lord, a transformation of our imaginations that we might live more fully into your story in this world. As we deal with a tricky and difficult story this morning, Lord, I pray for a special grace on each one of us, myself included, as the speaker. Let your word ring true and ring clear. For the sake of Jesus, your Son, I pray this, and we pray this together. Amen. Family. Michael J. Fox once said, Family is not an important thing. It's everything. George Santiana said, the family is one of nature's masterpieces. Family systems theorists say family trees are not only trees of knowledge, they can also become trees of fruit. Sociologists have said that family is the most fundamental subunit of healthy societies. Healthy families, healthy societies. But Scripture, beloved of God, Scripture goes further than all of this and says family is sacred. To be sure, family as the union of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, and the life that can spring from that union is sacred. It is sacred because it is the single institution ordained by God at creation the institution ordained by God for bringing his sacred image into the world and raising it there. And it is sacred because in a wonder of all wonders, despite its frailties, despite its failures, despite its extraordinary difficulties on this side of the fall, the family is sacred, friends, because it is God's chosen vehicle, his carrier, for bringing salvation into this world. In Genesis 3, immediately after the fall, God says that it will be in and through the seed of the woman, her family, that the serpent's head will be crushed. In Genesis 12, immediately after the scattering of the nations in hostility and idolatry at Babel, God says that it will be through Abraham and Sarah, their family, that all the nations in the world will be blessed. In Genesis as a whole, the whole book is organized to a tenfold repeating pattern of generations, toledotes in the Hebrew. These are the generations of. These are the generations of. These are the generations of. Where we witness births into a sacred family, underscoring the notion that sacred history unfolds and only unfolds, at least to begin with, in and through babies being born in the deliverances of the sacred family. In 2 Second Samuel 7, God informs David, son of Abraham, son of Adam, that the Messiah, the Christ who is to come, will come in and through the seed of David, through his generations of families. And here in Matthew's gospel, Matthew begins with a sacred history of families. 
He tells us he's going to give us a record of the genealogy, the generations. It is the Greek word that translates the Hebrew toledotes in Genesis. Matthew is picking up on that story. The generations leading to Jesus Christ. In other words, Matthew begins his gospel, people of God, by profiling in miniature form a sketch of sacred history, which again is a history, to begin with, of sacred families. So sacred is this concept of family to Matthew, in fact, as it leads to Christ, that he makes explicit for us in verse 17 of our text that there were, notice, three sets of 14 generations leading to Christ. 14 from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile, 14 from exile to Jesus himself. Three sets of 14 generations, or as the Jewish mind would have immediately picked up, six sets of seven generations, Jesus being the seventh, or beginning, the seventh of seven generations. Thereby betokening, indicating its perfection, its completion, its consummating nature. The kingdom of heaven has come, Matthew will say throughout his gospel as a refrain. And all by way of the family, God's chosen vehicle of salvation. And I think this is worth just pressing the pause button here for a moment. Beloved, think about it. God, as God, could have brought salvation into this world in any way he chose, for he is God. He could have chosen any means far less fragile than the human bonding of a man and a woman in marriage as husband and wife, who beget, or very often, look at the early Genesis narratives, struggle to beget children. I mean, angels would have been a good choice. Why not use angels? Or just the immediate incarnating and fleshing of the eternal Son of God at the right time in history with a simple snap of the fingers. That would have been quick and easy. But no. Instead, when the almighty, all-powerful, all-wise God chooses to bring the Savior of the world into the world to save the world, he chooses to do this through the institution and the workings of the immediate family. Down on through history in the people of Israel, notice the family of God, those who call God their father, and whom, as Nick said, is like unto a mother to them. It is a marvel, and it's one of the reasons that genealogies in Scripture, like the one we read in Matthew here, are not to be cast off or thought of as boring, as I wrote in a devotional a few weeks ago, but they are to be read and treated as scintillating, as records of God's divine activity in bringing salvation onto the hurly-burly canvas of real time and real history through real people. The family of Noah. The family of Mary and Joseph. Now, most genealogies in Scripture mention the husband alone, the man by himself, But Matthew mentions four unexpected figures, four women, four great-great-to-the-exponent grandmothers of Jesus, Tamar the mother of Zerah, Rahab the mother of Boaz, Ruth the mother of Obed, and Bathsheba the mother of Solomon, the wife 
of Uriah. And one of the perennial and stimulating questions always asked about this is why. Why would Matthew, in offering his summary of Israel's sacred history of families leading to Christ, mention these four unexpected women and only these four unexpected women? There was a lot more women, but he chooses four. It wasn't normal, so what was his point? Was his point to elevate women in a way that had not been done before? Was his point to show how God's love came to and through women with a past, like the prostitute Rahab? Was his point to underline the inclusion of the Gentiles as always a part of God's plan, given that three out of the four women mentioned here were Gentiles, included into the family of God? Was his point to show that God always allowed children to be born into his sacred history through unexpected circumstances and unexpected figures? And so, to demonstrate that Mary's highly, very unexpected virginal conception and birth shouldn't be a stumbling block or be thought of as a huge surprise. Well, beloved, I think these women were indeed chosen for all of these various reasons, in fact. And I also think that they were chosen for another reason and probably primarily for this reason. Because these four women and Mary then after them are a type. They are exemplars. They are shining examples of the ideal disciple or rather as aspects of ideal disciples according to Scripture. Of the kind of persons and people that Jesus can and will come to and through for the good of this world. And they are this, each in their own unique and unforgettable ways as we'll see through this Advent. They each give us one way or one aspect, if you will, of being and evermore becoming an ideal disciple of Jesus if we do what they do if we become like they are. And today, we look at Tamar. Tamar's story is told in Genesis 38, the entire chapter. It's the first time we hear about Tamar. It's the last time we hear about Tamar. And I'd like to explore how she demonstrates to us an ideal aspect of discipleship in Christ, or to put it in an Advent way, how we can make room for Jesus to come to us and through us into this world this Advent season. So let's look at this story together. I do not have time to read the full chapter and then make commentary upon it. So allow me to epitomize, to summarize the chapter, Genesis 38, whilst making commentary on it at the same time. Judah, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, after participating in the selling of their brat brother Joseph, into slavery. Judah leaves his father. He leaves his brothers and goes down to live to a close friend of his in a town far away. He chooses a friend over family. While there in this place, he meets a Canaanite woman, and even though Israelites were forbidden to do it, remember the story of Esau, he marries this Canaanite woman anyways. He marries, in other words, 
outside of the family of Israel. She, be, um, she becomes pregnant, this unnamed wife of Jacob, and in time gives birth to three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Three sons. We're not told anything about them at this point. The next thing we're told is that Judah is finding a wife for his oldest son, Ur, and he finds one. Her name is Tamar. We're not told anything else about Tamar. We're just given her name. Her name means palm tree, probably as an indication of her beauty. About Ur, however, we are told after his marriage to Tamar that he is wicked in God's eyes, though we're not told why. Jewish tradition speculates that it's because he refused to consummate his marriage, which in context is about the best explanation or guess one could have, but we're not told. All we see, all we are told, is that Ur's wickedness leads God to strike him dead. We are then told something that for us today sounds bizarre and off-putting. Once Ur dies, Judah, his father, goes to his next oldest son, Onan, and tells him that it is his duty to marry Tamar, the widow of his brother Ur. Now, this isn't a practice we engage in anymore. The practice of what is known in Scripture, what is called a Leverite marriage. Or Leverite marriage is described for us in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, is the practice in Israel whereby a married man in Israel, if a married man in Israel dies without offspring, the widow must not marry outside of the family of Israel, but, and now I quote, but the husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her, which was the duty to provide for her and protect for her and sleep with her to consummate that marriage so that she could become pregnant and bear a child for her firstborn or for her first husband under his name. The emphasis, notice, was on starting a family for the deceased brother. Why? Next verse, Deuteronomy 25, verse 6, quote, The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. In other words, put most simply, Leverite marriage was a way for a brother to be his brother's keeper and do this specifically by prioritizing his brother's physical family line, his physically family line above his own selfish interests. By giving his dead brother a son, Onad would preserve Ur's line in the larger family of Israel. He would preserve, if you like, the little sacred family unit belonging to Ur amidst the bigger unit of the family of Israel. There's more. So important was this duty to be, one brother's, be one's brother's keeper in this way and honoring the sacredness of his family that Deuteronomy 25 goes on to say that if a brother refuses to marry his dead brother's widow and fulfill his liverite duty to give her a child, the widow has recourse, legal recourse, to go to the elders of the town, expose his unwillingness, and then the elders of the town will interrogate him 
And if he continues to refuse to fulfill his liverite duty by marrying her, then verse 9, and here again I quote, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. The man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. It's one thing in our culture to be caught with your pants down, but in Israel, the thing is not to get caught with a sandal off because it means you've put your own interests above the interests of your brother's individual family as well as the interest of the family of God in salvation history as a vehicle of salvation history. The priority, friends, the priority. Family is to have the priority. Both the nuclear family from each husband and wife unit, building it, strengthening it, blessing it, ensuring it has a good future, and the family of God as the people of God, people of faith in the world, investing in that. But here's the thing. Now, coming back to Genesis 38. Ur is dead. Onan has the liverite duty. But Onan refuses to be his brother's keeper for Ur and to fulfill his liverite duty. As we discover, although he will take sexual pleasure in the beautiful Tamar, he refuses to do this in a way that leads to her pregnancy by spilling his seed on the ground. And for this dastardly deed, God does him in two. That's it for Onan. Judah, whose quiver was once filled with three sons, now has but one, Shelah. Judah tells Tamar that, don't worry, don't worry, when Shelah is old enough, he will marry her off to Shelah, and he will fulfill the Liverite duty, so that Ur indeed can have a name, a family line in the future of Israel, and Tamar can have a son. But Judah doesn't give Shelah to Tamar when he comes of age, because he is afraid that his son Shelah will die too. He blames Tamar for the death of his sons, rather than the wickedness of his sons. And this is where the story gets interesting, and in some ways filled with ambiguities and moral complexity. Because Tamar will not tolerate being neglected like this. Or to put it far more accurately, Tamar will not allow a bunch of selfish men who prioritize themselves, their own pleasures and interests above the sanctity of the family and above the sanctity of the family of Abraham through whom God is working salvation in the world, she will not allow a bunch of selfish men to get away with it. And the laser beam falls squarely on Judah, the biggest cheat of them all at this point in his life from an Israelite perspective. Indeed, because, look at the trajectory of Judah so far in this story, and notice also the repeated emphasis on the theme of family. It's a motif. Judah, after selling his own brothers into slavery, his own brother Joseph into slavery, and after then leaving his father behind, and then leaving his brothers behind, and then marrying a Canaanite woman instead of an Israelite woman who would have worshipped other gods. And so, in other words, to some, after abdicating his every duty 
to be his brother's keepers and prioritize the family of God in the world, which he should have done, Judah's own wife dies. And then, instead of finding another wife from the community within Israel and starting a family there, what Judah does, given that he's living for his own pleasures at this point, is he goes to the town square on a festive evening to find a prostitute. He finds one there whom he does not know has been his cunning and shrewd daughter-in-law, Tamar, who has disguised herself as a prostitute. He barters with her to use her, and she, as shrewd and cunning and as intelligent as ever, requires from him the badges of his personal identity. She requires his belt, his signet ring, his staff, all symbols of personal identity, and then she is promised a lamb. She becomes pregnant from the encounter. When Judah comes back to the town square a few days later in order to retrieve his personal badges of identity and give the lamb to the prostitute, he cannot find a prostitute, and he cannot find one because the people say there is no prostitute who lives in this town, and they are speaking the truth. There is no prostitute in the town. There never has been a prostitute in the town. The point of the text is that there is a daughter-in-law who is looking for what is rightfully hers and what is rightfully her deceased husband's, which is to have a family line in Israel. She's looking for what is rightfully hers. Judah then in a terrifying moment of the text, finds out about Tamar's alleged whoredom, her pregnancy because of prostitution, and in a rage and with a hypocrisy that shudders the bones, Judah demands that she be brought out and burned immediately. She is brought out, but as she is, she brings Judah's personal identity markers and says, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. Judah is thunderstruck. He is cut to the heart. He realizes the sort of man he has been, and he declares, quote, She is more righteous than I. Notice the reason. Since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. Tamar is more righteous than Judah because she had a focus, if I can coin a phrase, on the family. Folks, <laughs> Perhaps there is ambiguity in Tamar's action. Perhaps there is ambiguity in Tamar's cunning. Perhaps there is a conundrum in Tamar's leading her father-in-law to commit incest with her. And yet, I must tell you that the overwhelming thrust of this text is not on any shred of ambiguity in Tamar, but in Judah. Tamar, in fact, is declared righteous wonderfully righteous. Because ambiguities aside, she had the godly priorities right and was willing to pursue them at great cost to herself, despite what must have been great humiliation to herself, not to mention danger. She prioritized the sacred family unit within the holy family of Abraham, God's vehicle of salvation in the world where Judah and his sons did not. And further, this does not exhaust the beauties of this person 
Tamar and her righteousness. Because when Tamar does what she does, she not only succeeds in preserving the line of Ur and salvaging his entire family unit within Israel, but Tamar also, the text makes clear, forces Judah to become a man, a family man. Indeed, some think Genesis 38 doesn't fit within the larger narrative of the story of Joseph and his brothers and Joseph being sold down into slavery, the unit of Genesis 37 through 50. They think 38 was put in there by a later editor and it didn't have anything to do with the story. But this is a serious misreading of this text because what Genesis 38 does is show us, on the one hand, what sort of of compromised man of faith Judah is, how terribly unfit for leadership in the family of God in the world. But then on the other hand, Genesis 38 shows us the righteous woman, Tamar, who with astounding courage and chutzpah and commitment to the way of God's salvation in the world, forces Judah to look long and hard in the mirror And she thereby succeeds in tipping the domino train that will eventually lead Judah not only to become the sort of leader that God desires, but to become a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. Because as we see later in Genesis, when push comes to shove, Judah, who earlier in his selfishness and desire to advantage himself above others. He who earlier refused to be his brother's keeper will offer his own life now so that his other brothers might live. He will disadvantage himself in order to advantage his brothers. That is righteousness. And that is what qualifies one for leadership in the family of God. He becomes a prototype of the crucified Christ who lays down his life so that his brothers can live, who in an ultimate way disadvantages himself in order to advantage the other. And it is Tamar, beloved of God, this unexpected figure, who in her righteousness that is greater than Judah's leads him there because she was the first one who taught him what it meant to prioritize and sacrifice self for the good of the sacred family, the nuclear family, as well as the family of God in the world. Now, deep breath, right? That is, in my opinion, some really awesome stuff. But the question is, what's in it for us, and particularly on this side of the resurrection at our stage in salvation history. What might we learn in terms of being ideal disciples of Jesus or an aspect of evermore becoming ideal disciples of Jesus and making room for Jesus to come to and through us in the world? Well, I think it's in the same way as Tamar, though with a few different emphases, that we can learn something here. We too can participate today in the coming of Christ and prepare for it by, to coin the phrase again, by focusing on the family. That's right. And doing this in two senses. Focusing on the family in terms of actually focusing on our own and others' nuclear families to strengthen them as Christ-centered, holy households of faith and love. 
And secondly, we can focus on the family by focusing on the larger family of God, which is the church in the world today, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and ultimately of Jesus Christ, who calls us his now brothers and sisters and says that we can call his God and his father our father. The ideal disciple of Jesus, in other words, friends, in some, will not neglect families, nuclear families, or the family of God because they are still sacred. Rod Dreher, in his book, Live Not by Lies, which some of us in this church are studying together, Dreher tells the story of Christian resistance and struggle for human rights during the communist rule in Czechoslovakia. One of the primary and most effective strongholds of resistance at that time, says Dreher, was a single, solitary family, the Benda family of Prague. Vaclav and Camilla Benda, both academics and Catholics, had six children. And this couple believed that as a strong, united household of faith, they could make a difference. Rigorously instructing their children in the faith as well as a host of other subjects and passionately worshiping together, Vaclav and Camilla, along with their kids, did make a difference, a tremendous difference in very difficult times. Their house was more than a house. It was a home for their children and a womb for their growth in Christ. The children were taught that they were different and that it was okay to be different. It was okay to be peculiar. And they were deliberately enlisted by their parents to join in the struggle for freedom and human rights in their day, which helped them take responsibility for their faith and its outworking in the world. If the Benda family would watch movies They would do it together so that they could digest the meaning of it together. When the children were young, Camilla would read The Lord of the Rings to them and other like stories to help them recognize that Mordor is real and so is the struggle then against it. She worked to form in them thoroughly a Christian imagination. The Benda household was also a haven of hospitality for the wider community. Not just church people, but all who would come. Camilla, in particular, was a den mother, those who knew her said, who would embrace those who were scared because of an upcoming interrogation by the police and share strategies for enduring their questioning. They would come to the Benda household before being interrogated by the police. And here's a quote. Up to 20 people would show up every day at the Benda flat seeking advice, comfort, and community. And after police released the suspects, they would often return to the Benda home where Camilla would offer them a cup of tea and a glass of wine and encouragement. They must have gone through an awful lot of wine in that household. Up to 20 people a day. That's hospitality. The point is, friends, the power that a family can have for the good of the kingdom to the children born into them as well as those that might be blessed by them. Christ comes to and through healthy Christ-centered families, not only there, but not least of all there. It's Mary and Joseph. And so as we learn from the righteous Tamar, prioritizing the family, investing energy into it, being as strategic and wise in raising our children as we can, whether ours or others, is a good, godly, wise thing to do, even when it hurts It can pave the pathway for the coming of Christ himself and so often has. The Christian home, 
I note, is still the single greatest force for conversion and commitment to Christ in the world today. The Christian home, the family unit, and I would love to belabor this point by providing examples from both the Old and New Testaments as well as examples from more recent history. What I must be content to do here, however, is simply urge you to do what you can, whoever you are, if the opportunity is there, to strengthen and bless families, to help struggling marriages, to encourage perseverance, to prepare others for strong marriages, to help parents raise godly offspring using the gifts that you have, as we do do, you know, at every baptism here in this church, to also pray for broken families, If you are in a broken or suffering marriage right now, to do whatever you can to get healthy. Stay the course. Dig deeper. Find help. You are not just a romantic couple. You did not get together simply for companionate needs. You are, according to Scripture, an institution. An institution front-loaded with the power to do astounding good for God and others in the world. And I must be content with just saying this, friends, because there is yet one more thing to say, and that is that the family of God, the church, can take precedence and indeed must take precedence over the needs and the commitments to the nuclear family. This is dominical which means it comes from our Lord Jesus himself. Jesus is absolutely clear on this point. Who are Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of the Father in heaven. If it comes down to allegiance to your nuclear family or allegiance to the family headed by King Jesus, where must you go? With the family of God every single time. With Jesus. Matthew 10 and 37. Whoever loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Is the nuclear family getting married, having children, the only way to honor God, enter the sacred, and build his kingdom? On this side of the resurrection? Absolutely and positively not. In fact, In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul teaches that to be unmarried is not only honorable, but for serving the kingdom, it is frequently now preferable. While the married are often often concerned with their marriages and their children, the unmarried are free to serve unreservedly. They also stand as icons of the future world, the world that is yet to come, betokening in their unmarried state while in union with Christ, the new age in its fullness, where there will be no more marriage as we know it today, but there will be union with Christ, our husband, and we who are his bride. They betoken that future reality. It is a godly vocation to seek the path of celibacy. So in conclusion, friends, as we make room for Christ this Advent and seek to hasten his coming, as we seek to learn from these unexpected figures that Matthew mentions, who will teach us how to be and evermore become ideal disciples, let us indeed be like our great, great, great to the exponent grandmother in the faith, Tamar, and rightly, for God's sake, focus on the family, placing 
amidst other things that we do, a right and proper priority on the godly family. Ours and others' nuclear families as a force for Jesus coming into this world and the family of God and the church, which is Christ's bride in the world today and through whom he has come and will continue to come until he comes again along the Father and the Spirit. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Father Almighty, we thank you. Spirit of the living God, we thank you for this thing that we call family. When it is good, it is sweet. It is a force for good in our lives. It does shape us in beautiful ways. It enables us to feel safe and secure and loved. It gives us a firm identity. It instructs us and leads us to you in all these things we celebrate. But Lord, in our world too, we know that so many families struggle. For so many people, it's painful. Even the mention of how good it can be brings a source of pain because ours wasn't that way. Today, we lift up those who do or have had those experiences. We pray for you to bring an incredible amount of healing. Lord, not only into our physical families now, but even more than that, as we are drawn into the family of God in this world, to having a multitude of new brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for the family of believers above all things, Lord. If we are not yet enfolded, enveloped, welcomed into the family of God, we pray that you would draw us in so that we may experience love in a way that we have never experienced it before with you, O oh God, as our Father. Lord Jesus, we really do confess today that you are the hope of the nations because you draw the nations of the world so often from broken families into the ultimate family of all, the eternal family of God. Make this real to us, Lord Jesus, how you are the hope of the nations today for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your glory, and because you're worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.